hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Uh, the UK are having a round of allegations against public figures which centre around sexual ethics, consent, power and bullying. So people such as Chris Binodi, uh, David Ajay, uh, Nick Cohen, Philip Schofield, now Hugh Edwards. Um, these are all very different cases with their own particularities, yet the discussions surrounding them reveal a lack of nuance, lack of curiosity for critiquing sexual ethics, binary assumptions, carceral justice logics. As it seems we've learned nothing about sex, consent and justice, again, I thought it'd be great to invite Tina Sicker back on the show to talk about this and to apply her frame of a pleasure and care-centred ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness and see what might become from our conversation. Tina, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm about glad to be back. Repeat guest, return guest. <laughs> uh, Okay, Do so, I get like a t-shirt or anything? <laughs> well, in another podcast, I like Trash Future. They have like a, you get like an increasing lounge access at the airport. You get kind of, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, perhaps you get a free GMT or something if you want to. Mm -hmm. um, I can't promise that there'll be ice. It'll just be in a can. But, you know, <laughs> next, you know, we'll perhaps we'll let you into the first class lounge uh, for your third appearance. <laughs> uh, so um, for those listeners who have, listeners who haven't been able to read your book or haven't listened to our first conversation, uh, you really should go back to your listener and listen to our first conversation uh, because it's really good. Uh, it's one of our most popular podcasts. Um, can we summarise uh, your book, Sex, Consent and Justice? I mean, the way I summarise it for people, like my elevator pitch is in the Me Too era, we still learnt very little, which is useful about consent and justice. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it's sort of... It's it's within a, the legal series at University of Edinburgh Press, but it is a media text, it's a historical text, and it's one that's really tracking and then bringing, up, bringing us up to the point we are at now in terms of sexual ethics, um, you know, consent culture, uh, Me Too, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, contemporary ideas of, of of gender, of race, um, and how that sort of all is is distilled into you know what's happened over the past three or four years, mm -hmm. and so I try to use case studies, develop an alternative to um, hegemonic ideas of consent, mm -hmm. um, go through some of the histories of different forms of sexual ethics, um, and to root it in a, a legal and a sociocultural context. Mm -hmm. It's uh, such a great book, dear listener. If you can get a copy, um, uh, it's well worth your time reading and um, really intelligent and also accessible, I think, as well for an academic book. It's really great. So It just um, came out in paperback. Um, oh, so it's a little, little, little cheaper now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes then, okay. uh, dear listener. Um, okay. So, and also, what kind of work have you been doing uh, since the book came out as well? The There's a... a a project you've been working on justice recitations yeah so i've i mean my uh sort of approach and method to research uh, tends to be very um singular and so i do a lot of theory historical mm -hmm. analysis it's it's not particularly engaged and i'm really trying to push beyond that because i think on on topics and subjects like this, you have to really think about lived experience and talk to people. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I was, uh, I applied for some funding from UCRE and the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network to put together a lived experience sort of study incorporating creative practice, particularly. 
I'm definitely not an artist, but um, I brought in uh, Lady Kit, who's a local uh, feminist artist uh, in Newcastle, to work on the project with me. And we held a series of workshops where we basically workshopped the critiques of consent and hegemonic ideas of sexual ethics, put forward a the alternative that I have, asked a series of questions, you know, did some sort of qualitative analysis of the 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 results and the conversations that were had. The people who we brought in tended to be marginalized in one way or another to identify as um, a woman um, who has been harmed in some way, who has experienced sexual violence, but we didn't want them to sort of be re-traumatized. So they said that we said that it was based on their lived experience, which they were bringing to the workshops to tell us more about what they think about these new approaches. Mm. And while they were doing that, they were engaged in a crafting exercise. Mm. So there's these like little cardboard pieces of paper with the tenets of my approach written on them. In the middle, there was a cutout of the scales of justice, and they sort of played around with the knife and plasticine, and we photographed all of these and digitized everything, and, and it's up on a, on a website. Mm-hmm. Um, some academic articles came out of that, um, and a event that was online as well that we mm-hmm. brought in some speakers and did some talks and mm-hmm. presented the, uh, the findings. One other thing that did come out, and I I just um, closed out some travel. I was in Edinburgh and London and Manchester uh, to talk to some policy people, the mm-hmm. National Union of Students, and we put out a, a policy brief as well that came out from, from some of the findings. So it was a way mm-hmm. to kind of concretize the findings of the book um, into something that was um, practice-based. Yeah, I thought that, that's really, really useful. And also it's what I really valued about your book is that it's uh, – is um it is using theory in order to actually articulate what a what a kind of um if if we're not if we're not reliant on uh the like socio-legal model of consent anymore like what else do we have what else is possible um and you know i guess this also speaks to a little bit of my kind of work as well because you know i've been as a sex educator i work with young people and adults around consent so we still use the word consent but the focus we have is um, is less kind of telling people what consent is, uh, but more trying to figure out what consent might do and the possibilities for it. And so we kind of get into this thing that uh, that, that your project's also been doing of, um, you know, what consent might uh, feel like, uh, how we might feel it in the body, how we might make sense of it emotionally, what we might think about it, and, then, and actually what we might do to to further increase consent. So using Elsie Whittington's um, idea of the consent continuums as well, and the idea Mm. that consent is something we can always have more of. Um, And I guess like a kind of a Spinozan idea of that anything which increases our capacity to act, um, uh, any process that increases our capacity to act um, is the work of consent because it is increasing our freedoms to act with another. And I think in that way, it kind of, um, it fits in really nicely with a pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. They, I think that they, um, even though they have different framings, how that actually looks is yeah. uh, to think of, well, um, you know, uh, what's the vibe like? What are we doing around, you know, is the room 
does the room have adequate lighting? Is there enough privacy? Do we have enough time? Um, what are we, have we talked about the kinds of things we may want to do and how do we, what are we going to do in order to pay attention to how these things might emerge slowly and how do we account for differences in ages and, and power? But what are the kinds of micro politics we might do to kind of navigate that kind of stuff as well? And this is, and so these might be very, very tiny things like something as simple as, um, Sip, taking a break for a sip of water and just having a quick check-in or, you know, we might need to go to the toilet during or before or after or having a snack. You know, those kinds of little... these. At the, I, I really like the care-centred ethic of part of this, that that yeah. we, do, we need these labours of love um, that you talk mm-hmm. about in your book. And I think it's really important. However, casual interaction. Yeah. And that's where the sort of feminist... Um, aspect comes in because it's um, that care ethic. And I, I try to really make a distinction, even in the work I do on critical science studies and, and uh, feminist science studies, that it is a feminist ethic. It's not a feminine ethic. So it's not trying to reinscribe gender norms, yeah. but it is saying that in a space and in a culture and a political climate in which women in particular have been socialized in this particular way, mm-hmm. they have um, a a sense of learned knowledge that can be used in in this context and care happens to be part of that. It's not biological, it's not essential, but it is something that is learned and sort of accretes over time. Absolutely. And in my work with with young men who um, are often desperate for, uh, to have, you know, sexual experiences that are more pleasurable and uh, feel better. Um, it is that it is it is the messages they receive around masculinity being antithetical to a care centered ethic. Uh, but actually, when we point out that well, we're all doing careful things all of the time. Like if, mm-hmm. even in our everyday interactions that are non sexual, we're all doing these kind of um, micro acts, micro communications uh, that are about being careful. Uh, but it's just that I, I guess also when it comes to sex, that men and women receive extremely different messages uh, mm-hmm. about their bodies, um, which produces and is related to a lot of the violence that happens um, in sexual intimate encounters, I think. Yeah. And I think that idea of, you know, the the binaries that are inserted in here. So it's like mm-hmm. the male, female, it's mm-hmm. yes, no, it's all of these kind of things and the idea of, of trying to explode those binaries and think about continuums, the material discursive to yeah. think about things as enmeshed um, in ways that challenge dominant systems of knowledge, but do so in service of a much better outcome for yeah. everyone. Um, and so the, the model is sort of like, how, how do you, how do you do this? And two of the things that really, spoke to me in terms of the workshops, in terms of um, what I might do to sort of tweak the model a little bit, is that to think of it as, um, or to kind of describe it more as a living model, so Mm. potentially something that can be more generative and change and shift, because it did, it was pointed out to me by one person in, in a workshop that, that consent is not, and even my model is not particularly conducive to people who might be neurodivergent or nonverbal. Yeah. Um, and so what happens when those kinds of, you know, the, the 
model didn't have affordances to meet that particular group of people. And so I've been kind of mulling over and thinking, okay, like, how can I incorporate descriptively or in practice, you know, the actual doing mm-hmm. um, uh, where, where someone who was neurodivergent would see themselves within the model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had those kinds of conversations with, with folk too, actually after our, our um after our conversation. And I look back into the research around um how the research around how we read how the research which was talking about how in social situations we bet we rarely say yes or no. But that also that in the same research, people that the researchers found that people could read a yes or no. Um which I think you you use in your book, and it's something mm-hmm. that um, I think I've referred to that in, uh, in my work with Megtron as well. Um, I mean, I think my approach to this, and something that I've been leaning more on, is um, to use a to use a, to kind of borrow an idea from solution focused brief therapy, which is to look at the exceptions of what happens and what resources we have available to us. So you know, when we are, so my question is. You know, when we are doing consent, when we are uh, increasing our capacity to act and increasing the capacity of the other person to act, what are we doing? Like, what are the actual things that we do? Because there is always this danger of when we focus only on sexual violence of of examining, well, what was missing, rather than also looking at the, you know, at the, the vast majority of cases, or let's say the majority of intimate encounters where we are doing consent and not just in terms of sex, but also just, just every day, the, you know, mm-hmm. the seemingly mundane um, things that we perhaps aren't really paying enough attention to, which indicate that we are doing consensual things. Um, uh, like all of the, all of the little acts of care that you and I have had to do in order to make this conversation happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, and dear listener, this is the kind of thing that you can think about too. And I think that's, that when we pay attention to that, then we start to see all of the resources that are available, and that those resources are um, heterogeneous as well. That we that yeah. we have that, that we each of us have these kinds of sets of resources, and we are doing them, and it's paying attention to them, isn't it? Yeah, and and I think even in the policy space, um, one of the things that I was getting from some of the discussions I was having by like policymakers or even academics who do policy work was that embedding this in any kind of a program in higher education, secondary education, anything like that would be really difficult and particularly difficult in the United States. Hmm. But I like the idea of what you're, what you're saying is that we, we do this in other areas. And so my idea, what I kind of put forth was like, okay, if we can sort of embed my approach, that kind of, that kind of ethic of pleasure and care and embodiment hmm. um, in other areas of life, uh, that perhaps it can sort of permeate and sort of diffuse into the sexual realm as well, that there's a kind of systemic cultural thing that you can't, you know, sort of separate sex from other spheres of relationship. And so potentially instilling these values in other areas will then set the groundwork for it to be actualized in the sexual sphere also. So that was like something I was mulling over also because of the like just so much pushback particularly in the states but even in 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 the uk and canada of um sex education and then also sexuality and children's sexuality in particular teen sexuality yeah and we 
Um, and we're not in a good place to resist that uh, either. Like, um, particularly in the UK, uh, the uh, sexuality education is uh, has been pulverized by austerity over the years, and so we we're not in a we're it's the worst time for us to be able to respond to a lot of that pushback and for us to think really creatively and about how we about how we do consent. I mean, you know. Certainly, I've worked in schools where I've delivered, you know, I get, you know, sometimes I get 35 minutes to do a lesson on consent and I introduce them to my handshakes activity where they're actually practicing consent with each other rather than mm-hmm. me just telling them what it is and they practice it and they learn to unpack social scripts for handshakes and greetings and learn the difficulties of negotiating absolutely everything you want from a handshake before you do it because there are lots of unknowingnesses around this and it can be awkward and we might not have the vocabulary, but there are also huge possibilities of, of doing that. And then also the possibilities of really tuning into the other person and trying to make a handshake as good as possible uh, without using words and the kinds of micro communications we do during a handshake to kind of make it as good for each other as possible. And everyone can be like, wow, we feel like we've learned a lot. and We can take that into mm-hmm. the world, not just in greetings, but also in sexual um, situations. And then they go out of the classroom <laughs> and they're in a school. And they're in a school which often feels quite violent or in a school where they're not treated. Or sometimes the kids will tell me in a school they've had non-consensual handshakes with teachers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it's this thing of um, that it's what if we applied uh, this pleasure and care centered ethic everywhere in all yeah. places? And that, that I think this will also come out in our conversation that is coming out in our conversation. We're already doing it, but it's, it should be there in workplaces. Like it would be, you know, and there's probably a reason why it's not in workplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in that way, even when we take it out of the sexual realm, it has this possibility of being really radical in ways that are in a ways which uh, capital uh, and uh, white capital are, would seek to really resist as well. Yeah, and and in that way, you can't uh, separate it from logics of austerity, of um, deunionization, of um, precarity in in labor, um, and then that just becomes connected to a culture of misogyny, and it's just ripe for things to happen. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. Well, this is a pretty like meaty opening this is really useful stuff um and um so let's get into our kind of we've got a few notes here that we're gonna mm-hmm. see how many we get through but there's so much to talk about so i mean first and foremost i don't know whether you notice this but with and also we're gonna have to be very vague about all of this a lot these these cases are still very much kind of ongoing we don't know enough about them uh well, in some cases, we know quite a lot. In other cases, we know very little. In other cases, it's rumour and supposition. So it's important also that we that we say here that we can't... A lot of... Some of these cases are kind of fit the Me Too kind of framing, and others really don't. So I think we just need to... I just need to re-emphasise that point here, dear listener, that we're not trying to say that all of the cases with all of the men that I mentioned at the beginning of the show are the same. They're really not. But there were some of the, the the reason I wanted to talk about this with Tina is to look at some of the discourses that come out of it, or I should say discussions. So some of them barely even some of these 
Well, anyway, I think we use the word discourse too much. But anyway, some of the discussions that come out of this kind of reveal that we still learn little from Me Too. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I was still seeing a lot of the kind of um, the binaries around um, sexual ethics and that the, so the main, the key sexual ethic is consent and that, and that, that consent is very binary. So uh, was there consent or not? Was there a yes or no? Was there an affirmative consent or not? Was it enthusiastic or not? And crucially, was it a criminal offence or not? Um, and we're st- so we're still seeing how these like logics of the, the criminal justice system are used to pass um, harm and whether like harm has been committed or whether people deserve like a, a punishment. Is that something you were noticing too? And um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, about yeah. Um, you know, there were a couple of cases, um, the David Ajay case and also the Crispin O'Day case that um, it was that the consent did come up that it that whatever what occurred allegedly was consensual. And so that was, it became a, he said, she said, it devolved very quickly. Um, I think there's also the issue of um, any criminal cases being um, cases that are against the state, not Mm. against the survivor. That came up in the Crispin O'Day case. Mm. Um, You know, that I think that that is a, an important element of a lot of these, these cases in in a legal sense is that, Um, survivors tend to say that they don't feel heard, they don't feel advocated for, they mm. don't feel a sense of agency. Um, so I think that that comes out um, as well. That also comes to mind the toxic work cultures um, mm. that that are just rife in all of these areas. The Nick Cohen case as well. Mm. Um, that that there's there seems to be a a, a kind of pattern um in media particularly mm. in which um a toxic work culture kind of connects with um misogyny and patriarchy that then connects to a culture of celebrity and um it it just makes the conditions very rife for the kinds of of disclosures that happen um mm. and that have happened over the last few months particularly mm. And so, the, and the focus is often prim- is still primarily primarily with the individual, isn't it? And it's like this yeah. kind of an individual bad actor, um, rather than looking at some of the uh, rather than looking the the structures in which that person is uh, given the per- like permission almost or implicit permission to to do these things, but then also the system in which. Um, which uh, produces these hierarchies where there are some people who are kind of seen as unvictimizable and others who are seen as absolutely victimizable. Um, yeah. And uh, this was certainly coming up in a lot of the cases, people, very junior members of staff or not even members of staff, freelancers often, people often as part of the uh, abuse seeming to do um, being uh coerced into doing free work even mm-hmm. um and so there's been very little to say about um about how we challenge these kinds of structures and what i suppose the the issue with consent when we just look at consent as this you know social legal model is that it had that that by by definition that is about an individual doing something wrong or 
mm-hmm. or right and then it's the and then so we're not looking at well what would a consensual workplace look like what would you know what would that mean what would a pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational otherness in this case do in terms of just what would a workplace look like if it had that so yeah i think it's uh significant that the first tenet of my model is that you need that we need to look at sex as an assemblage so not as individual discrete acts but as a set of technologies institutions norms laws values Mm -hmm. um, that are all co-constituted co-produced in flux and we can't really and and that the the flaw or or the the mistake that we make is in focusing so specifically on individual cases, discrete cases. And I think about the Harvey Weinstein case quite a bit mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, him fitting into this sort of monster narrative, mm-hmm. which was sort of very easy and like, okay, put down this monster, and then we have achieved victory. And and that sort of detracts from the the fact of, you know, what what are the logics within the entertainment industry? What are the gender norms in play? There were issues of race that weren't addressed, Mm -hmm. of precarity and capitalism and power differentials built Mm -hmm. into the system. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And that this was a very rarefied workplace as well. And so we're not looking at other workplaces, you know, like the, the housekeepers or, or the, you know, um, the cleaning staff or the person behind the till um, who might have a monster in the back as well, but never get that airing. And then framing of the monster itself is a problem. So, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and so dear listener, when you hear the word assemblages here, also think the rhizome, which is a word that I keep using on the podcast, but I suppose a way of looking at this would be, Harvey Weinstein, uh, the monster is the kind of um, the part of the the node of the rhizome, like a mushroom, for example, that has been kind of taken out and detached and put away. <clears throat> but the rest of the rhizome is still there. The rest of it is still all in relation to everything else. And actually, you can never really take Harvey Weinstein. You can, the mushroom can never really be removed. That's uh, uh, an agential cut, isn't it? But, you know, he's so there is still like a connection to the mushroom which is just over here but everything else is still um in place so uh and because the because the rest of the uh the, the assemblage hasn't received anything like the attention that it could in terms of what a uh transformative justice approach might mm-hmm. might do and how we can make people safer and uh, but also to allow people to thrive and to just become um in workplaces then um these places, these workplaces continue as we've seen, um, as we see now in Hollywood with, you know, yeah. strikes, for example. And and those those cuts, I think it's important to mention that they also entail responsibility, mm. and it's often bifurcated. So like response dash ability, but it's this idea that when we do take a cut from a larger assemblage to highlight one area or the other to study something that we become responsible for that cut in the way that it's presented. And I mm. think that a lot of people, particularly in the media, failed in that cutting. Um, yeah. yeah. And in the media, it kind of seems like, um, you know, there is that similar rhizomes happening in their own in their own area as well, which is kind of part mm. of it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so like news values, um, pressures from editorial, from, you know, for getting clicks, um, for getting clicks that require the story to be kind of stripped of its context. Um, so it can be easily digested and mm. potentially even, you know, a little bit salacious. Um, yeah. I think there's also a thing there about, you know, what is, what is newsworthy and what it what is news and i think that there is a kind of like a uh um you know less less attention is paid to um to anything involving like care you know the kind of um i suppose what we're, i'm talking about here is the kind of the way that we reify things that are coded as masculine and so this way it has this kind of like circularity to it because when we reify things coded as masculine we are also we're also taking part in in some more binary thinking about you know let's find the bad guy and let's uh yeah. and let's punish them which i think also is kind of you know that yeah. the way that we look at justice is also this kind of um antithetical to uh care and assemblages um yeah and it's very individualized as well so it's like you know you you put one person in prison and then what yeah. Um, yeah. and, and the idea that, you know, of the cases that occur and then of the cases that get reported and of the cases that go to an arrest and of those that go to trial and like it's infa to, to infa just really small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it just, it, it's, it's unfortunate that that individualizing logic sort of plays itself out within the criminal justice or the criminal injustice system as well. Yes. Yeah. And ironically, the, one of the few voices uh, uh, who have, who have talked about um, the possibility of uh, kind of uh, the being structural responsibility or uh, that the structure is part of the rhizome that, which might produce sexual violence or harassment or, um, uh, unethical sexual uh, or other conduct uh, is right-wing Tory MP Lee Anderson uh, and other Tories saying, you know, saying, suggesting that uh, to quote BBC, the BBC is a safe haven for perverts, kind of trying to uh, not so subtly link um, current cases happening at the BBC with uh, the past of Jimmy Savile and uh, Gary Glitter and people like that. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, you know, it's all, it's in very, very bad faith an example of yeah. where the right can take yes. on board some of the they can kind of uh, cosplay or or strip out some uh discourses uh from the left and take them out and kind of use them and weaponize them against the left yeah and and i see the same thing happening and it you know it's gotten me in trouble in the past but even in feminist spaces where feminist logics are then pulled out and used to marginalize trans um individuals yeah. uh so that you know that that kind of weaponizing of of frameworks that are meant to be capacious care centers everything mm-hmm. else to uh identify inequality and to try to attend to that inequality can become very quickly weaponized by in this case is the right um to 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 really undo a lot of the work that's been done yeah yeah i think here with the 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 bad faith arguments around this from from uh 
right-wing politicians is also i mean i don't want to be kind of the hypocrisy police but the that the house of commons and parliament has a predatory culture allegedly that uh is allegedly it's been called the palace of sexminster by some people which is a very unfortunate uh term but it's been uh written about where lots of uh again a similar pattern where young junior often women but not all women uh staffers um not solely women staffers uh, have faced uh, and face sexual violence and also fear uh, sexual violence uh, in Parliament. So there's kind of a look over here, kind of pantomime kind of thing, like a kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, but what about them? And it is a lot of this. So it's an, it's, it's an irony that the only time where we're really talking about the structures are, the, are, are, are when it's used in this kind of a right wing kind of water battery kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, the the sort of workplace relationships and the age gaps and all that kind of stuff um i i am very careful around that you know mm. as well just because um i'm an abolitionist so i'm not in favor of overcriminalizing or criminalizing behaviors at all yeah. um and then there's also how um women in particular that this idea that that they have no agency or they they kind of become infantilized in a lot of these conversations as well. So there has to be a little bit of a, of a more reflective, more complicated view of these um, relationships, not all, because some of them are are, are blatantly, you know, um, examples of, of um, either being illegal or, or, or be violating like workplace norms or just being, um, you know, really based on power inequality and exploiting those inequalities um but then there's there's also the the idea of that um you know particularly in like the the hugh edwards case and some of the um complaints and then um also the phillips uh schofield case Mm -hmm. as well that there's a lot of complexity and that in some of these cases not only is there an element of you know, of, of it being gendered in terms of the power di- dynamics, but also that in queer relationships, there has to be a little bit more complexity as well, I think, um, because everything is default heteronormative, um, that, that there is a little bit of complexity that's often not talked about. It's been over like exaggerated a little bit in some of the literature Mm. you know in terms of just like queer people have an entirely different relationship to age differences i don't think that that's like the 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 case you know but that um there are different dynamics in play yeah right yeah hugh lem has written really well about this uh dear listener um and that there is definitely uh a for many people a sense of homophobia about the uh, about um Hugh Edwards and the Philip Schofield's uh, cases that I think do have in nature some things which relate to other what we might call me too cases but um but there is uh there is definitely a kind of uh, well this is a non-normative relating and so we're going to in some way try to punish this uh via using the uh the the rhetoric of me of me too um and and uh and consent culture but -hmm. i suppose here might like this might be a kind of a useful framing for us to 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 think about the the possibilities of um either what i call actually occurring consent or uh what what we're calling here a a pleasure and care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness like how 
if we if we were to apply these kinds of measures, not measures, these kinds of framings um, in an assemblage, again, dear listener, rhizome, um, then what what does this do with age gaps or power imbalances? You know, there are lots of uh, very small things that we could be doing there yeah. to to ensure that. Um, uh, to ensure to to maximize freedom, to maximize consent, to maximize yeah. pleasure and care. Yeah, I think it it really does start with thinking very carefully and asking survivors or complainants or individuals who become bound up in it um, of their lived experience and so what that lived experience is and how mm. they feel about it. Mm. Um, I think that that's in the case of. Uh, in the university space, I've written a little bit about student-staff relationships because there are a lot of cases in the graduate sphere, like graduate schools of PhD, where like su- supervisors and supervisees, you know, get married. And if you go to those supervisees, usually women, and ask, you know, do they feel exploited or or are they taken advantage of? They insist no. So it's like, what do you do? Like, okay, there right. was a power differential, but you don't want to say that that you know that person was like 26 years old and like how can you but then you might say well maybe personality wise maybe she was taken advantage of or or she Mm. has some you know other other kind of issues she's trying to move through and and Mm. sift through um but i think that thinking very carefully about you know does that person convey that the sex that they have and the relationship they have is mutually pleasurable Mm -hmm. that, that there's always an ethic of communication that um, they feel taken care of and that there's a a sense of respect for the other as a constitutive part of the relationship that Mm -hmm. they feel um, that the sex is embodied in a way that they feel comfortable and Mm -hmm. they are happy in the relationship that 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 we have to give a sense of of um agreement and believe like the yeah. whole believability issue i think it's really um important here that if we're saying believe survivors why is this the area that we don't believe them in right um yeah and as you to go back to your point before it becomes infantilizing and uh i find myself often just kind of uh uh, phrases phrases that are now become part of my lexicon are phrases I've got from your book. We don't want to fix people's social locations uh, and to suggest that you know that that people's social locations are, are fixed by their their uh, material discursive um, relations. That so a young woman in a in a law firm, for example, might only have so much consent, and it's not possible. Sorry, might only have so much agency, and so therefore it wouldn't be possible for them to consent. That's it's as infant that's it's infantilizing um and it is this kind of these things that you were talking about so i guess you know for me what would you know what might an age gap or power gap conceptual relationship might look like well it might be saying okay well we're doing something which is um not the uh the heteronormative uh script of how we're supposed to do um sex and relationships but also there are other kinds of scripts available that we will want to be careful of so we need to interrogate these that you know the the power gap and the age gap scripts that we might fall into and so we have to keep this on the table as an actively uh an active conversation around to make sure that we're 
that would that if we are doing something which is scripted that we're intentionally doing it and making the implicit explicit at all times and i think really important thing which comes from when we look at actually occurring consent and um and what you were just talking about is how we bring the body in and this is what feminist new materialism but also just thinking about um, assemblages and rhizomes and Deleuze and Guattari's mm. ideas is that is uh is that the body does things and the the body is affected and the body is part of this affective flow in relation to and so this is what really frustrates me about consent discourse it's as if because when people are able to be kind of um separate the mind and body and say well this what they do is to say well this thing over here that they're doing that didn't look very consensual to me or that couldn't have been consensual because of dot 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 but it, it enables them to other uh folk and to say well and to um and to say well because they're not doing this uh or or because this is their nature of their relationship they were unable to actually have any agency between them or co-produce uh um any uh acts of joy or intimacy and then it kind of lets them off the hook by thinking by thinking well but but i'm okay everything i do is consensual of course and so their own because they they kind of leave themselves out of it almost i think yeah yeah and i think also it's um uh there are, for 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 queer communities i think it's also that um you know we have to pay attention then and listen to you know how does socialization sexual socialization occur in those communities what are the norms that are generated there um, to, to move away from any kind of like just extreme heteronormative approaches to sexual ethics, which I think are very problematic. Yeah. Um, and and uh, to, to look at, you know, just how complex those um, communities are. And then also that, that um, when it comes to differentials in power and different workplaces and things um you know really really gendered um the whole binary between like the rational man and the embodied over emotional woman and that's mm -hmm. why the body as a source of knowledge tends to be pushed to the side and we're trying to sort of bring it back in yeah. um and, and then also it being um quite racialized as well so you'll mm -hmm. see a very different kind of media and criminalization media coverage and criminalization that would occur if, say, the person in power is a black man versus mm -hmm. a white secretary. Yeah. Um, you're going to get a very different discussion of agency and of uh, and that sort of the colonial racial logics just come really clearly through. Yeah, I suppose to come back to this, um, I think we've talked about this a bit so far already, but the but I think that there are there are these like hierarchies of power which then um like reproduce these uh, interlocking oppressions, but also relate to um interlocking oppressions of, for example, as we've just talked about, uh race and gender, uh sexism, racism, um uh and uh, homophobia, biphobia, biphobia and uh some transphobia here as well, as well as you know many many other oppressions um but there it it recreates these these hierarchies and it recreates these um this idea of kind of who gets to have who gets to have sexual agency and and um who is able to have consensual sex and who and for whom we don't care about whether they have consensual sex and for me that was really strongly playing out in just looking at the stories of the the survivors of this 
Was, is there anything else we have to we can say about this about how um, actually non-consensual cultures are actually really good for the people who benefit from them in those in those environments? Yeah, yeah, that they're they're products of you know this, that the, we're talking about assemblages, but it, you know if we're looking at the way things are structured, capitalism, colonialism patriarchy have all kind of fused in a in a way to make it so that some people have agency some people don't have agency and i think also the you know in terms of interlocking oppressions and who has agency i think um discussions around disability are are really important here as well um you know there have been some cases um with you know uh, a husband and wife where the wife is in a care home has like dementia they Mm. have sex and then it's seen as criminal right and 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 you know that 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 there has to be a um a conversation about about that or or if someone is um disabled in one way or another cognitively or anything else mm-hmm. um it's off they're often infantilized and said that you know what about their sexual agency and their mm-hmm. right to pleasure um uh, i i think that that is something that needs to be added to the conversation yeah definitely I mean, obviously this is where a just to kind of remember to go back to the bookmark at the beginning of our conversation, or this is the problem when consent is only ever viewed in discourse as this, um, in the social legal manner, and that there are binaries of, uh, is there, was there consent, was there not consent? Because um, I also think in some of these cases, even where, you know, even the cases where we couldn't say that there might have been criminal activity, um, there certainly was room for a pleasure and care centered ethic. <laughs> that you know that you know that may not have been there i think mm-hmm. um, and and, yeah. and and i i also have a sense that i don't want to sort of exceptionalize se- um sex i know that there's been some recent work in the legal um community just around non-exceptionalizing sex mm-hmm. within the law so just like make it the way assault any other assault is mm-hmm. so to not make it a sort of separate um area that that is the flaw that needs to be corrected. Mm. And I think that, you, like, yes, you don't want to sort of exceptionalize sex in a way that, you know, makes it other, but there is also a sense that it is a very distinctive kind of interaction um, yeah. and that some care has to be taken to understanding what that interaction is. And it sort of intersects with the whole whole issue of um, who can consent because yeah. it's so interesting that that, like, you know, certain people or certain activities like, oh, they couldn't have consented to this, but you can consent to like head trauma in a American football game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so it's it's, yeah. you know, that the, there seems to be a lot of inconsistencies here. And I think that a lot of the non-consensual discussions of things like BDSM are about, um, you know, um, very sort of puritanical sexual norms and just you know some um you know just sort of uh tra- transphobia um mm-hmm. queer phobia as well yeah yeah um i completely agree i think there's something about you know sex is a sex is well in modern days in in uh in the modern period 
because this is not true in the in the pre-modern period, in the medieval period, but sex is private. You know, sex is a private activity mostly. But the problem is that sex has been privatized. So even though sex is private, I think that the, the, the we can't talk about sex. And so what that means, I suppose, is that sex becomes an activity where because we can't talk about it because we're not supposed to um that is something that we have just been taught to think in my opinion uh sexual hegemony sexual education hegemony has just told us for since thomas aquinas and probably since before that that we're not supposed to talk about it so or even and certainly not do it and certainly not enjoy it but this the privatization of a private activity um means that there are these greater possibilities for harm in a way that, for example, an asexual relationship where there is a power gap relationship um, would not be seen anywhere near as harmful, right? You know, if it was a an intimate but non-sexual relationship uh, between you know, people with very different power and age gaps, it's not problematized at all which is a problem <laughs> because yeah. there's, you know, because then it's like, well, and it's another binary of, well, that's non-sexual. So there's absolutely nothing going on. We're not even paying, paying any attention to this, but if it was sexual, then suddenly we give it all the attention. Um, mm-hmm. As well that... as it being a topic, a lurid topic that gets clicks and attention. Yeah. I, I think it, it also that in that context, um, you know, the way that sex is culturally constructed and the norms that we have around it, we built around it to, you know, within the scholarship and just in practice to take, you know, the, that there is a kind of transnational perspective as well. So different cultures, different communities. Um, I had one person in the workshops who came from a South Asian country in South Asia talk about how consent for women was just not something that would come up. And then rooting that in colonial logics of imperial purity around sexual relations that have been imposed on colonized countries. And you see that all over the world as well. You don't want to kind of um, leave those, you know, some of those uh, cultures and communities off the hook um, for some of the um, the misogyny that are, that's there. But, um, you know, that has to be taken into consideration, I think. And then and then also you have, you know, distinct um, approaches to sex, even within um, looking at how people who are, are, are trans are treated in different kind of communities. And there's a lot of discussion in India, for example, of, of hijras mm-hmm. as being like, oh, they're not looked on as other. They're not looked on as particularly problematic, but they are an object of ridicule hmm. within that context. So like, yes, there is a kind of third gender, but there are power dynamics in play that doesn't mean that we should sort of, um, you know, look at or exoticize the other culture. Like, look how good they do it. And it's like, right. well, no, that's not the way that it it works in practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree, and um, it's but it's definitely. I mean, when when we see, um, you know, when when we ask the question, you know, who benefits from this, uh, and we think, and where, and and the beneficiary is, you know, patriarchal capitalism, then we can then it helps to understand everything else 
uh, it helps to understand um, how we see sex, how sex has become, uh, how sex is very like privatized. We only talk about certain kinds of sex as well. Um, uh, you know, we're talking about um, entry sex um, or in certain procreative. Sex. Procreative, yeah, um, and um, and then we and we reinforce these binaries around um, around what is consensual or not, which is um, rather than thinking, rather than having this model, which is okay. Well, how can we increase our capacity for joy? How can we increase the capacity? How can we increase, uh, you know, how can we have a pleasure and care centered ethic? Um, I think we should, let's talk about justice uh, some more uh, to, to kind of end uh, end our conversation. So um, the the, the modes of uh, justice that we have around sexual offences, you know, fail the fail the victim slash survivor. Um, I'm using both terms here because it's a contested. Some folk yeah. call themselves victims. Some folk for the term survivors. Um, and it often fails the victim slash survivor and re-traumatizes them. But also, um, convictions for sexual uh, offences are so low. Um, in the Chris Binodi case, uh, his case was heard by a magistrate, and in, uh, in magistrates in the UK. Well, actually, I shouldn't say UK, England and Wales. I think because I don't know anything about the criminal justice system in Scotland. Um, uh, magistrates in, in England. Um, it's uh, you're not tried by a jury, you're tried by uh, a magistrate, and I think two lay people. I've got a law degree; I should know this. Um, but the uh, the um, maximum punishment uh, is much lower in a magistrate's court. Generally speaking, if you get to a jury trial, uh, the punishments can be higher. The magistrate found Chris Benodi um, not guilty and said some very nice things to Chris Benodi. Or you can leave here with your reputation completely intact and says some very unpleasant things uh to uh the complainant and so you know the complainant we don't, i don't know if the complainant was re-traumatized but i imagine that must have been very difficult and you know there's no justice there he was found not guilty a lot of these a lot of these uh allegations that were made in the ft by a brilliant very long read in in the ft and i think also by tortoise Mag- uh, media um detail several allegations from several different women several of other uh, sexual assaults um acts of sexual violence at the workplace and outside but just my long intro there is you know the, this castle system is just failing uh everyone victims mm-hmm. survivors and society as a whole what kinds of justice might be better what you know what yeah. might proper accountability and justice and responsibility look like yeah, I've been doing a lot of work. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm an abolitionist when it comes to sexual violence and, and criminal just, the criminal justice system, policing um, as well. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it, it, it does not work, um, you know, has not worked. Um, even if um, O'Day was to have been found guilty and gone to jail, that does nothing to the structures that produced his behavior. Um, and... And and so my my approach and I kind of you know build up this approach within it's it's hard for cases of sexual violence people can say you know they can accept a restorative justice kind of practice or program in the case of like burglary or mm-hmm. or you know mm-hmm. crimes by young offenders mm-hmm. um, or, or that sort of thing where. 
there's a bunch of different models, but it it mostly involves, you know, the the uh, person that has um, the allegations have been made against has to take ownership of what they've done in a very fulsome way. This is not an easy process. It lasts months. Mm-hmm. It's very involved. Um, that they have to apologize. They have to listen to the survivor who doesn't have to be present, can mm-hmm. do it through a mediator, but gets to sit within a, a you know, committee or a community supported space with perhaps parents or friends or, you know, if it's in a workplace, colleagues where um, they would be able to be heard entirely. They would be able to lead the process to say that, you know, in I I want this in terms of reparation. It could be money. It could be education. It could be community service. It could be psychological support. The um, person would have to check in. There would be follow-up. Their community would be responsible for holding them to account. Hmm. Um, Withdrawal could happen at any time. And in cases where this has occurred, um, for sexual violence in particular, and this has happened in a few cases in the States, um, in Arizona, in New York, uh, in Canada, particularly within Indigenous communities, in New Zealand and Australia, that the recidivism is very low. Um, the survivors feel heard. Um, there has to be a lot of care taken. So a lot of training goes into training the, the people who lead these processes to make sure that power dynamics are not infiltrating, that there's no undue pressure. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of checks and balances that are put in. Um, and there are other other permutations of, of how this can occur. Um but I think that this is where we have to go because it it attends to the individual act, to larger structures. It's community based. It is the state is not the person who has been trespassed against. It's mm-hmm. the actual person. Yeah. Um, and there's a sense of agency that happens there. Um, and I think that we have to move to these different models and approaches. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, which is, as you say, it's it's uh, it's it's hard work, um, and uh, it's and finding the resources, um, both people and time, and also actual reading material and uh, mm-hmm. an actual you know uh, physical material to help uh, navigate those kinds of uh, accountability processes. Um, are not always like readily available and easy to come by. Um, we... I, I will say that that some of the best work that's come out around restorative transformative justice and of um, these processes are from Indigenous scholars mm, yeah. and Black feminist scholars. So uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, mm-hmm. Marianne Kaba, Dorothy Roberts, you know, are all kind of people who... I would really go to um, um, as well. Yeah. 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 Dear listener, I hope that you found this a more useful and interesting and, you know, rich conversation about these topics. Um, Tina, thank you so much for coming on and, and doing so much, you know, really great thinking and, and work and practice around this stuff. And we need more of it, don't you think? 
Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I always, I always enjoy doing podcasts and yours in particular. I think, yeah, the conversations have always been really generative and necessary. So, you know, the more of them, the the better. Great. Well, I really loved having you on and uh, next time we'll upgrade you even further. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for coming along. Thank you.